The crime scene was brutal. It was Friday the 13th, June of 1980. Local officers entered Al and Betty Gore's home to find it drenched in blood. Betty Gore, a 30-year-old mother of two, had been hacked to pieces with an axe. One of her good friends, Candy Montgomery, was the last person to see her alive. Candy had a lot of secrets she was keeping from her friend, including the fact that she was having an affair with Betty's husband. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime, and I'm your host, Sandy. This is a very popular case, and I haven't covered too many of those, but a wonderful listener named Jeannie suggested the case, and it's a very interesting one. It also happens to be that this Friday is Friday the 13th, and this week a new TV series covering this case comes out. The signs were all there, so I had to cover it. Today's case takes place in Texas, where everything is bigger, including their murder cases. Candy Montgomery, as a teenager, was more interested in boys and socializing than she was in school. She read all the romance novels and expected to find a man just like the ones in her books. As she dated throughout high school, she never found the kind of love she read about in her novels, but she didn't stop looking. True to form, the sparks didn't fly when she met her future husband either. She was set up on a blind date by his mother. Pat Montgomery was an electrical engineer who worked for Texas Instruments. He didn't date much. In fact, the only dates he'd had at the time were blind dates set up by friends and family. His mother didn't have the same taste as Pat did. She would set him up with women he described as plump. Candy worked with Pat Montgomery's mother at a furniture factory and thought Candy was nice. She asked if Candy would be willing to go out on a date with her son Pat. Candy agreed, and so did Pat. On their first day, when Candy was picked up, Pat claimed his first thoughts upon seeing her was double-chin and overweight. This was typical of its mother's choices and confirmed that she was not his type. He took her out for dinner and then to a movie. Pat's conversational skills were lacking, and Candy pretended to listen as he went on and on about his childhood vacations. She tried to fill in the blanks in the conversation with questions about Pat, but mostly she just wanted the date to be over. He kind of sounded like a jerk. Pat Montgomery wasn't her type. He wasn't ugly, exactly. She dated worse. It stunned her when, after their excruciating date, he asked her out that same night for a second one. She was quite surprised to find herself answering yes. She'd always been a bit of a people pleaser, and it wasn't easy for her to say no. The following day, they had a second date. They went for a walk on some local sand dunes, holding hands. Candy playfully joked that she had sand in her hot pants. They ended up at a drive-in movie, where Pat tried to show Candy what he could do with his hands. She put him in his place, and they went back to watching the movie, so she was surprised that he asked for a third date that same night. Candy told Pat to call her the next day, but she avoided the phone call and never spoke to him. She had no intention of going out with him ever again. Instead, she went to her mother's house for the evening. Pat called her house over and over, getting no response, and instead of realizing that she wasn't interested, he thought she must have gotten called away to a family emergency, or maybe had forgotten about the date. A couple days later, he sent her a dozen roses and a card that said, I hope you got all the sand out of your pants. This move impressed Candy, and she called his workplace at Texas Instruments to find out his phone number. 
She called to thank him for the flowers, and they began a romance. Candy was of an age that she began thinking about settling down, having kids, living in the country somewhere. She never thought very hard about the man she would be married to, but more about what her dream life would be, and hers was fairly simple. She wanted to be a mother, so she thought Pat would do. They would get married in the early 70s and move to Collin County in Texas in 1977. Pat was making a great income for the time. It was over 70000 a year in the 1970s. And when I looked it up, this said it was equivalent to just over half a million in today's dollars, but another source said 300000 Either way, it's a pretty good income. This allowed them to move into Candy's dream house in the country. It wasn't far from the Church of Lucas, which became the center of Candy's universe. Most of the people who moved to Collin County worked in the engineering field. They were all typical middle-class families. They sent their children to a little schoolhouse, joined local clubs, and ran for the town council. Twenty miles to the southwest were the outskirts of Dallas. Many of the people in the families made their incomes working as engineers or physicists and computer analysts. Candy and Pat had been married for about seven years by the time they moved to Texas. When they moved there, it was Candy's dream come true. She had her beautiful country home and two beautiful children. She spent a lot of time at her church, which she really enjoyed, and she kept busy. But after seven years, she found her marriage to Pat to be really boring. She still craved the sparks that she read about in her never-ending line of romance novels. She made friends with several women in her church, and she would speak to them about her desire to have an affair and to add some excitement to her life. According to the book Evidence of Love by John Bloom and Jim Atkinson, Candy Montgomery would always be able to remember at the exact moment when she decided she would try to go to bed with Alan Gore. It didn't matter that he was married to a woman named Betty. Candy felt sparks when she bumped into him on a church volleyball court on a summer's day in 1978. Candy and Alan Gore tried to make a play on the volleyball at the same time and they bumped into each other. For everyone else, it was just a harmless bump, but for Candy, it was much, much more. She thought Alan smelled sexy. After talking with her friends for weeks about having an affair, Candy wanted to shake things up. She wanted the kind of affair that she described as fireworks and transcendent sex. She still loved Pat and didn't want to break up her marriage. After all, he made a good income, and she had the house of her dreams. But she was horny, and Pat was boring. She thought being a wife and mother was pretty boring, too. But mostly, she just wanted to get laid. When she bumped into Alan and got a good whiff of him, she thought maybe he could make the earth move for her. Most people looking at Alan didn't think that way. He had a receding hairline and a dad bod. He was kind of bland, average. But she'd gotten to know him and his wife Betty over the last few months, and Alan was a lot like her. He was active in his church, he loved kids, and was definitely the more outgoing, friendly half of what she believed to be a mismatched couple. Alan sang in the choir and organized sports teams, while his wife Betty preferred to stay in the background. Betty was an elementary-age school teacher. She was a rule follower, and she had an air about her that made her difficult to connect with. 
Candy began to notice that Alan joked with her a little bit more than he had joked with the other women at their church. He teased her about her volleyball skills and flirted with her in a way that seemed harmless to most. Sometimes, after choir practice, they'd stay a little longer or loiter in the parking lot while others were getting into their cars. Maybe Candy was reading more into it than there really was, but she felt like something was there. She began to fantasize about having sex with Alan, and she couldn't stop. She was almost 29 years old now and was sexually frustrated. The weeks went by, and all she could think about was Alan and how sexy he smelled. She finally decided that she had to do something. So she approached Alan one night while he was getting into his car. She walked up to his passenger side and opened the door, sat down in the seat and said, Alan, I want to talk to you sometime about something that's been bothering me. His response was, uh, okay, how about right now? She slid into the seat behind him, not daring to look at his eyes. I've been thinking a lot about you and it's really bothering me and I don't know whether I want you to do anything about it or not. I'm very attracted to you, and I'm thinking about it, so I just wanted to tell you. At this point, she became flustered and jumped out of the car, slamming the door behind her and hurrying across the lot. Alan felt flattered and a little bit ridiculous, but he thought about Candy a lot over the next few days and wondered what she meant. Alan wasn't exactly shocked by Candy's directness, but what surprised him was that he thought Candy was interested in him sexually, and this made him happy. Candy was one of the more attractive women in his church, in his opinion, and she was definitely a lot of fun. She was flirty and funny. He compared Candy to his wife, Betty. He felt Betty was fairly needy. She had grown up as Betty Pomeroy and was raised very conventionally. She was pretty, but very innocent as a young girl. Even so, she'd been one of the more popular girls in her hometown of Norwich, Kansas. Betty was as surprised as anyone else when she fell in love with her math teacher in college. Of course, they waited until she graduated to announce their engagement, but when they did, her family and friends were surprised. They couldn't see what Betty saw in Alan. He was plain and ordinary, with horn-rimmed glasses and chubby cheeks, and even at a young age he already had signs of a receding hairline. This didn't matter to Betty, though, and they were married in January of 1970. They had their first child soon after. Alan started working for Rockwell International, another electronics conglomerate and a major defense contractor. Betty took a job teaching elementary school, but she didn't like her job. She didn't make friends easily and didn't have a network of women to hang out with, and Alan traveled a lot for work, which she dreaded. She got lonely. She loved when he was home and hated it when he left. In spite of Betty's general unhappiness, in 1978, they decided they should have a second child. Betty tried to plan the childbirth down to the exact week the baby would be born. That way, she wouldn't have to take time off from her teaching job. She was trying to take care of her family and work life in a way that would be convenient for her with a newborn. She was trying to do it all and often felt overwhelmed. Because of this, their sex life suffered. She could rarely relax enough to enjoy it, and Alan thought it wasn't very exciting. In fact, it had dwindled down to almost nothing, and when they did have sex, it felt mechanical. Now that they were trying to have a baby, Alan was required to have clinical sex with Betty every night during her times of fertility, in the name of family planning. This made him resentful, and he felt like he was being used rather than appreciated and loved. 
Betty's anxiety, her complaints, and the lack of a sex life made Alan and Betty's marital future look bleak. When Alan compared Betty to Candy, the fact that he felt desired by Candy Montgomery, the idea of an affair was alluring. He didn't want to hurt Betty. He still loved her, but it made him very happy and excited that a woman like Candy would desire him. A week or so after their conversation in the car, Alan and Candy saw each other again at another volleyball game. They decided to stay and help clean up the gymnasium, and afterwards they walked out of the parking lot together. At this point, Alan asked Candy what exactly she had in mind. Candy told him to get into her car, and they sat inside while they discussed having an affair. Candy said bluntly, Would you be interested in having an affair? Alan didn't know what to say. Candy went on, explaining, It's just something I've been thinking about, and I wanted to say it out loud so I don't have to think about it anymore. Alan replied, Oh, I don't think I could, Candy. I don't think it would be a good idea, because I love Betty. Once, when we were living in New Mexico, she had an affair and it hurt me a lot. I wouldn't want to do that to her. Candy said, That's fine, Alan. I love Pat, too, and I wouldn't want to hurt him, either. Alan explained that Betty had just gotten pregnant. Candy said, Okay, I was just putting the option out there because of how I felt. It's up to you to decide. I don't want an affair to hurt your marriage. All I wanted to do was go to bed. I won't mention it again. At this point, Alan leans across the seat and kisses Candy on the lips. Then he quickly gets out of the car. I did a lot of research for this episode, and there's plenty out there. In almost every telling of this popular case, the conversations between Candy and Pat remain the same so I'd be remiss to leave them out. Bear with me as I tell you their conversations. They're kind of ridiculous, but it does add a little bit to the story. After kissing Candy on the lips, Alan went home and considered the affair some more. He always enjoyed sex and knew that Betty did too. There was nothing wrong, really, with their love life when there wasn't stress in their lives, but lately there wasn't much enthusiasm in the bedroom. Alan continued to work hard, but he couldn't progress any further in his job unless he traveled more. He sacrificed promotions in his work so he could be home with Betty because she hated being alone. Even with his sacrifice, Betty would come home from work full of stress and would use most of her evenings to grade papers for the next day's classes. Alan felt neglected. Candy was home, bored as usual, on her 29th birthday. But that changed in an instant when a phone call came in, completely out of the blue. The message was, Hi, this is Alan. I have to go to McKinley tomorrow to get some tires checked on the new truck I bought. I wondered if you'd like to come have lunch with me. You know, to talk about what we talked about before. It had been two or three weeks since the last time they had talked in the parking lot outside the gym. During this time, Candy had felt foolish for approaching Alan in the first place and even worse, for being rejected. She had wanted to put the incident out of her mind. But now, with this phone call, she felt butterflies in her stomach. Andy and Pat had been arguing a little bit more than normal lately. She had joined a writing class to ease some of her boredom, and she was bringing home A-plus papers, but all Pat would do was glance at them. He didn't show much interest, and this insensitivity infuriated her, which led to arguments. In Pat's mind, they were arguments over nothing, but to her they represented all the things that were wrong with the Montgomery marriage. Candy happily met Alan at an auto repair shop in McKinney 
a few miles north of Candy's house. Alan broke the ice by handing Candy a birthday card. She opened the envelope, and on the front of the card it read, For the last of the red-hot lovers, and inside was a plastic bag filled with red-hots. Just in case somebody's not familiar with red-hots, it's a type of candy, the kind that rots your teeth, not the kind that desires an extramarital affair. The gift was corny, but Candy loved it. They drove to a nearby cafe where they talked about almost everything except the affair for nearly an hour. Finally, when Tot came around to the affair, Alan started with saying, I've never done anything like an affair before. I haven't either, said Candy. I'd never be able to forgive myself if Betty ever found out about something like that. I think it would be devastating to her. I feel the same way. I wouldn't want to see anyone hurt by this, Pat or Betty. We'd have to be so careful that no one would ever know except us. I've been thinking a lot about you and what you said and not wanting to get emotionally involved. That would be very important to me. Me too, Alan. I just want to enjoy myself without hurting myself or anyone else. Well, let's think about this a little more, and maybe we should think about the hazards a bit more, and whether we want to take that risk. Fine, Candy replied. I think we should. These fireworks that Candy kept searching for certainly had a long fuse. A few weeks later, Alan calls Candy again while Pat's at work. They talked some more about having an affair, and both were getting excited by the prospect of a tryst. Candy teased Alan by saying, You know, if we don't go to bed soon, then you'll never be able to live up to the expectation I have of you in bed. I know, he said, not laughing. I thought of that. Fuse kept burning for another month. They kept meeting, secret meeting after secret meeting, and they were slowly moving towards the most meticulously planned affair in the history of boring affairs. The fuse still smoldered, but Candy was getting impatient. She finally invited Alan to her house, and she fixed him her famous lasagna. She decided before Alan arrived that if nothing happened, soon, she wasn't going to waste her time anymore. She'd already done what she could, and it was really up to Alan to make up his mind. She'd made her mind up. As soon as Alan walked into Candy's house that day, he began to laugh, because the first thing he saw hanging on her living room wall was a huge piece of paper. On it, in magic marker, were two columns. One list was the whys, and one list was the why-nots. After eating lunch together, they sat in the living room and went over the list an item at a time. The most important one was their fear of getting caught. Candy reassured him, saying, "'It shouldn't be a problem if we're careful.' Alan was concerned that they would become emotionally involved, and once again, Candy reassured him, telling him that as far as she was concerned, it was just for fun and nothing serious. She closed her argument, saying that they would always wonder what would have happened if they didn't do it. She left the decision up to Alan. They left each other's company, and a few days later, Alan called, telling her he wanted to go ahead with it. Still, the Big Bang didn't happen right away. There were ground rules that had to be established and problems to be worked out. The couple wrote down a list of rules. They are as follows. Number one, if either one of them wanted to end the affair for whatever reason, it would end, no questions asked. Number two, if either one of them became too emotionally involved, the affair would end. If they ever started taking risks that shouldn't be taken, the affair would end. All expenses for food, motel room, 
bedroom, and gasoline would be equally shared. They would only meet on weekdays while their spouses were at work. Candy would be in charge of fixing lunch on the days they met so they could have more time. They figured they would need all of Alan's two-hour lunch. That's some high hopes right there. Candy would be in charge of getting the motel room for the same reason, in order to save time. I guess all Alan really needed to do was show up with his penis. Rule number eight. They would meet on a Tuesday or Thursday, once every two weeks, and that was because Candy was only free on days when her littlest boy attended a playday preschool at the church. He went four days a week, but she wanted two days to be able to attend to other errands and school duties in her hectic home schedule. They set their official date to have sex to be December 12, 1978. Let's be honest. Their affair really started months earlier when their intimate conversations began. On December 12th, Candy spent the morning getting ready. She dropped her kids off at school and came back to the house to fix a special lunch. This wasn't a peanut butter and jelly affair. It was so much fancier. Candy made marinated chicken, lettuce salad with cherry tomatoes and bacon bits, Thousand Island dressing, white wine, and even cheesecake for dessert. She packed everything, including a tablecloth, into a picnic basket. Then she gathered her negligee, tucking it into her purse. By eleven o'clock, she was entering the parking lot of the Continental Inn. She was given a key to one of the upstairs bedrooms, set back from the highway. She drove the car around to the back and started unpacking. She then called Alan, telling him that she was at the Continental Inn, room 213. She busied herself getting ready, arranging the feast on the bed, and then she slipped into her favorite peekaboo negligee. She then sat in a chair near the window and waited for Alan to arrive. On the way to the motel, Alan realized he wasn't as brave as he thought. He thought maybe the only reason he was doing this was to make Candy happy. But when Candy opened the door to the hotel room, smiling and seductive in her pink nightgown, all of his worries disappeared when the blood rushed from one head to the other. They ate lunch and made small talk. Then they busied themselves cleaning up, neither one wanting to make the first move. Finally, when there was nothing left to do, Candy sat quietly in the chair by the window. Alan was the first to speak, saying, Are you just going to sit there? And Candy replied, saying yes. He walked around the bed and touched her shoulder. The sex was gentle and conventional and satisfying, but it was also brief. I guess they didn't need the two hours after all. Candy was surprised by Alan's naivety. She realized when she stuck her tongue into his mouth that he had never French-kissed someone before. He showed promise, though, and was a quick learner. These fireworks were duds. On the other hand... Alan was blown away. Candy was responsive and energetic. He found that sex with her was more exciting than any sexual experience he'd ever had. He couldn't keep going for long, but he remembered the feelings she gave him for days. Afterwards, Candy insisted they both take showers so they wouldn't smell like each other. Candy was happy. Despite Alan's inexperience, she hadn't had to fake her response as much. He showed some promise. They both wanted more. So a week later, they arranged for a second meeting. This time, they went to a cheaper, sleazier motel across the way. It was called the Como Motel. It was obvious that these rooms were often rented by the hour, so to speak. 
So here, for the remainder of 1978 and the first three months of 1979, they met to have sex every other week. The affair made them feel alive and young and full of excitement. In the beginning. But after a while, Candy began to have second thoughts. She realized the sex wasn't going to get much better than it already was. There hadn't been that much improvement since the first time. She didn't think Alan was capable of fireworks, no matter how much she coached him. She also felt like she was beginning to like Alan too much. Maybe even that she was beginning to fall in love with him, and that was too risky. As time went on, they felt less like lovers and more like friends. At one rendezvous, they didn't even have sex because they wanted to spend the time talking. After two and a half months, Candy told Alan that she thought she was getting in too deep and she felt like they were falling in love. But for some reason, the affair didn't end then. A little break happened when Candy went on a two-week vacation with her husband. She was looking forward to it. She wanted a break from Alan, hoping that she would lose some of the feelings that she had for him. But what she found was that she missed him deeply while she was gone. And Alan felt the same way. They were excited to meet again, and when they did, they spent most of their time catching up on each other's lives. The sex was once again brief. They talked about Candy's vacation, and they spoke of Betty's pregnancy. She was now seven months along, and Alan was getting apprehensive. Betty would need more attention as the due date grew closer. In June, he told Candy that he thought they should discontinue the affair so that he could be available to Betty at all times, and Candy agreed. Candy was actually kind of happy about it because the last visit to the Como had confirmed her fears. The sex wasn't that great. They spent so much time talking that the physical part was just obligatory. She was getting tired of getting up early, making their fancy lunches, she also didn't like that Alan had come to expect the little notes and cookies she had been leaving on his car from time to time. She missed the excitement of the first few weeks of their affair. Candy believed no one had any suspicions about anything nefarious going on. Even when she and Alex exchanged glances during worship service, she felt everyone was oblivious to their relationship. I think Candy liked drama. This is because when she had the opportunity to host a surprise baby shower for Betty Gore, she took it. It was Candy's idea. Maybe she thought it would be fun, even exciting, to have this little secret between she and Alan, all the while pretending to be friends with Betty. Candy claimed it never occurred to her that it would be awkward because she never felt uncomfortable around Betty, even when she was sleeping with Alan. A cake was made. Friends brought gifts, and Candy was right. No one felt uncomfortable or suspicious. Not even poor Betty. Betty had her baby in early July, as she seemed happier for a little while after Bethany was born. Alan felt closer to Betty than he had in a long time, but the feelings didn't last long, and by the end of the month, he started his fare back up with Candy. When they met, he realized that he was feeling guilty. He thought about Betty back at the house, taking care of the baby, and he remembered the feelings he had after Bethany was born. He wanted those feelings back, and he wanted them back with his wife. He wanted to end things with Candy, but he wasn't prepared to tell her. A couple weeks later, Betty finally felt well enough to travel, and that meant that she and Alan could take the baby to meet her grandparents. When they returned a week later on a Thursday, 
Alan told Betty that he had to go to work on Friday, but the truth was that Candy really wanted to see Alan that Friday. Betty was not happy that Alan had to go to work. It was a Friday, after all. He could stay home with her and help out around the house. It seems to me she was a little bit suspicious about why he just had to go to work on a Friday. Alan cooked up an excuse to call Candy. It was something to do with the church. He called her from the kitchen while Betty was in the master bedroom at the back of the house, and without actually saying the words, he got the message across that he couldn't make it. Candy was angry, because now she and Pat were leaving for a week-long vacation, which meant that Candy and Alan wouldn't be able to see each other for two weeks. Alan didn't want to hang up while Candy was mad, so he stayed on the phone for a few minutes, hoping she would calm down. When he finally hung up, he felt depressed and embarrassed, and went to the bedroom. Betty's first comment was, Gee, that sure was a long conversation. I think Betty knew something was up. Candy and her husband, Pat, had a nice vacation together. But the following Friday, Candy made plans to meet Alan at the Como Motel. They met, had sex, talked, as they normally did. But the problem was, that night, Betty wanted to make love with Alan. They hadn't had sex since the baby was born. At first, it was because Betty wasn't healed up from having a freaking baby, and later it was because they were out of habit. But that night, Betty was insistent, aggressive even, and it wasn't like her. Alan had been with Candy that afternoon, and he was spent. He couldn't think of an excuse to ward off Betty's advances, so he just told her he didn't feel like it. Betty began to cry. She felt like Alan didn't love her anymore. She'd been rejected. And I'm willing to wager she began to feel even more suspicious. After that weekend, Alan phoned Candy, telling her that he needed to talk. They arranged to meet for lunch. Alan poured out the whole story about what happened with Betty on Friday night. He told Candy that Betty kept saying, You don't love me anymore. You don't love me anymore. Candy asked if he reassured Betty, and he replied that he had. Then Candy began to cry, telling him that she thought it was a little unfair of Betty to say a thing like that after Alan couldn't perform one time. Alan said he thought they should end the affair, but this pissed Candy off. She had suggested that they end it earlier, but he'd talked her out of it. They'd broken several of their own rules already. They decided it was time to cool off for a while, and only spoke by phone for a few weeks. After Betty had been rejected by Alan, she began to fall into a depression. Alan tried to coax her out of it by spending more time with her, but she began complaining of soreness in her neck and shoulders. She was sullen and depressed most of the time. She began going to her doctor, who prescribed pain pills to alleviate some of her complaints. Later that month, Alan took a new job. He thought this job might make Betty happy. One, it was a pay raise, and two, it didn't require extensive travel. After several weeks, Alan spoke to Candy again, telling her about his new job and that he wouldn't be able to see her as much. The schedule was different now. Candy was upset, and she began to feel like the relationship was ending. She asked Alan if they couldn't meet at least one more time. They did, and had quick, unsatisfying sex then spent an hour and a half discussing how they could live without each other. They met once again in a park, just to talk, 
and at this point Alan told Candy that Benny wanted to go to a program called Marriage Encounters. It was a program designed to help couples grow closer together. Betty felt that something was wrong in their marriage, but she couldn't put her finger on quite what it was. Maybe she suspected an affair, but probably didn't know who it was. Candy said, I think the marriage encounter is going to be the end for us. And in a way it was. The marriage encounter program consisted of couples going away to a motel together. Spouses were to be at each other's sides at all times, and no television was allowed to be watched the whole weekend. It was all about communicating their feelings. The couples were given notebooks in which they would write down answers to questions, and then they exchanged their notebooks. They were asked to write love letters and exchange dialogue about their feelings. Alan wrote that he wanted to come to the encounter so that they could strengthen their marriage. He said he hadn't felt very close to Betty for a long time and wanted to fix things. As the weekend progressed, Betty shared that Alan made her feel calm. He made her feel warm and happy, and that's why she didn't like it when he left. There were a lot more exchanges, and it was an intense time of reconnection for the couple. By the time they left the encounter, they felt much closer together and were committed to keeping that closeness. As they drove home, they discussed how they could keep their marriage flame burning. The Gores had one more errand to run before they returned to their home, though, and that was stopping by Candy Montgomery's house to pick up baby Bethany, who Candy had kept for the weekend. Candy and Pat had become close friends with Alan and Betty over the previous months. Their children played together often and spent the night at each other's houses. They babysat each other's children. Alan and Candy met secretly again. They met at a park and talked about how Alan was reconnecting with Betty. He really had no desire to meet with Candy anymore, but he couldn't tell her that and wouldn't say the words that they were breaking up. They left the issue hanging, but agreed to meet the next day. And when they did, Candy came to the point. She said, Alan, you seem to be leaving it up to me, so I've decided I won't call. I won't try to see you, and I won't bother you anymore. They both cried a little because the relationship was over, but they moved on, and Alan was glad Candy was the one who called things off. A short time later, Candy and Pat attended the marriage encounter program. They enjoyed it as well, but didn't seem to get as much out of it as Alan and Betty did. Both couples headed into the summer of 1980. Alan and Betty, with a sense of recommitment and peace in their relationship. Pat and Candy seemed to be doing pretty well as well. Over the next several months, the two families continued to spend time together, but there was no more affair going on between Alan and Candy. In fact, during that time, Candy managed to begin another affair with another man. She was moving on. She was still searching for those fireworks. The second affair was short-lived, and Candy broke it off when she sensed the man wanted to spend more time with her than just sex. Months went by, seven of them, since Pat and Candy had broken up. Then Friday the 13th, 1980, Freaky Friday comes along. The toe on Candy's left foot was bleeding. She stared at it as she tried to grab her keys out of her purse. The next thing she knew, she was driving. She was telling herself, she's in the car, she's normal. It's just a normal day, just keep moving, one foot after the other. Her mind was blank, but she was aware the car was moving. 
She glanced down at her lap and saw that her jeans were soaked in water. Her whole outfit was wet. She didn't understand why. Why was her toe throbbing? She thought, God, it hurts. I cut my toe on the storm door. That's what happened. Why am I so wet? She asked herself. She pulled into her house, ran upstairs, stripping off her blouse and jeans. She wiped the blood from her toe and wrapped a band-aid around it. She washed her clothes and changed into another pair of blue jeans. She rinsed off, washed her hair, and noticed a cut on the side of her forehead. The last thing she did before leaving the house was replace her rubber sandals with a pair of blue tennis shoes. The tennis shoes kept good pressure on her toe bandage. She left her house to pick up her children and Betty Gore's daughter, Alyssa, at church. The children's puppet show was coming to a close when Candy pulled into the parking lot. She ran into another woman from the church and mentioned that she had just gone down to Betty's, and they got to talking. Then she realized she was running out of time. She raced all the way to Target for some Father's Day cards, but when she stopped there, she realized her watch had stopped. She was so late, she didn't even have time to run into the store. She turned around and went to the church to pick up her kids. Then she told her friend that she was taking Alyssa, Betty's daughter, with them to see The Empire Strikes Back later that night. The afternoon passed in a fog for Candy. She bundled the children into the station wagon. They kept her busy and kept her thoughts at bay. They picked out Father's Day cards and then went to Candy's house. She told Alyssa to get ready for her swim lesson and took a minute to phone Pat at work. She told him that Alyssa would be spending the night that night, and then asked Pat if he knew where Alan Gore was working today. Pat thought that was a odd question, but answered, no, why? And Candy said, it's not important. At the home of Al and Betty Gore, no one came or went on the afternoon of June 13th. The phone rang occasionally and wasn't answered. A delivery man dropped the parcel off at the front door, but got no response. Alan Gore called his wife around 4 p.m. when he was getting ready to board a plane to St. Paul. After several rings, he hung up. The only sign that the house was occupied at all was the sound of a baby crying at the top of her lungs. The dog scampered around the yard, howling and whimpering. Alan was worried about Betty. She had broken down earlier that morning because Alan had to travel again for work. But after talking and some reassurance, they had left on good terms. On his way to the gate, he had stopped at a payphone and dialed home. He got no answer. When there was no answer, he just thought maybe Betty was taking a walk with the baby. He caught his flight on time and made it to his hotel room in St. Paul at about 8 p.m. He tried calling Betty again, but still got no answer. He had an operator dial the number, but again, no answer. He was beginning to worry. He called his neighbor, the real estate agent who had sold them their house. He asked his friend to go check on Betty. His friend ran across the street and rang the doorbell, but didn't get an answer. He returned home and called Alan back, saying, There was no answer, Alan. She must be out. Alan thanked him for checking and said he'd try calling her again later. On impulse, Alan called Candy Montgomery, asking her if she'd seen Betty. She responded with, Oh, Alan, where are you? He explained that he was in Minnesota on a business trip, and he'd been trying to get a hold of Betty, but he couldn't reach her. Candy told him that she saw Betty earlier that morning when she went by to pick up Alyssa's swimsuit. 
and Alan asked if Betty seemed all right at that time. Candy said she was fine. She acted like she was in a hurry for me to leave. Alan asked if Candy knew where Betty might be, but Candy had no explanation. Her voice was full of concern. She explained that when she went over to pick up Alyssa's bathing suit, Betty was okay. She remembered Betty had been sewing. They talked for a while. Then Betty gave Candy some peppermints for Alyssa to give her during her swim lessons. Candy took the bathing suit and peppermints and left. Then Alan asked if Alyssa was there now. Candy called Alyssa to the phone, and Alan spoke with her briefly about her swim lesson and asked Alyssa if Betty had mentioned going out that evening. Alyssa couldn't remember anything, so Alan told her to have a good time and to be polite to the Montgomerys. After ending that phone call with Candy, he went to a short dinner with some co-workers and returned to his room around 10 p.m. He called Betty again, but there was still no answer at home. He called his neighbor Richard a second time, asking him to please go see if both cars were in the garage. Richard went over to the fence, glanced at the garage, and then returned to the phone telling Alan there was one car there, but that the garage door was open and the lights were on. Alan thought that was strange and thought maybe there had been an emergency with the baby. He called the hospitals and the police, but they'd never heard the name Betty Gore. He felt helpless, so he called Candy again. He told her that a car was gone, the garage door was open, the lights were on, and he was concerned because Betty never did those things. She never left the garage door open. Had Candy heard from Betty at all? Candy hadn't heard anything, but she volunteered to go down and check on the house or to call hospitals if Alan wanted her to. He said no and ended the conversation. At this point, he was beginning to feel frantic, so he called his neighbor Richard for a third time and didn't waste words. He told Richard he was very worried about Betty and begged him to go over and check all the doors and inside the house if he could. Richard felt put upon, but was frightened by Alan's panic, and this time he went all the way up the driveway and into the garage, where he was startled to see two cars. The smaller car had been pulled up so far he hadn't seen it the first time. He walked into the garage and tried to open the utility room door. He could see a light underneath it, but it was locked. Something about the house disturbed him. He went back to the phone and told Alan that something was wrong. Both cars were there and the lights were on, but no one was answering his knocks. Alan told Richard that he needed to get into the house as quickly as he could. Alan then called another neighbor, asking him to go over to the house and check on Betty as well. That neighbor went to check on the house and felt something was wrong, so he woke up a third neighbor. Two minutes later, the two friends met in the alleyway behind the Gore house and startled Richard as he walked up to the house with his realtor keys. All three men planned to enter the house at the same time. None of Richard's realtor keys worked on the rear door. Someone suggested they try the front windows, so they went around to the front door, where Richard would try out his keys again. He was surprised to find that the door was unlocked. In fact, it was slightly open. The two other men joined Richard on the front porch. He stuck his head in the crack of the door, calling for Betty, but there was no response. They stepped inside and turned on the hall light. They passed a child's bedroom, but there was nothing unusual there. The next room was the bathroom, and on the tile they saw a dark, caked substance. They continued to move through the house and eventually heard the baby. She was hoarse from crying. It was obvious that she'd been left there a long time. Richard gathered up the baby and ran back to his house to call the police. The other two men moved forward through the house, entering the master bedroom, where they found nothing. 
Then they entered the living room area. One, named Jerry, went to the dining room, while the other, named Lester, headed toward the kitchen. They turned on the lights as they went, at the same time becoming aware of a strange smell permeating the house. Lester made his way through the kitchen, towards the utility room. Once there, he uttered the words, "'Jerry, don't go any further. She's dead.' Jerry walked tentatively toward the utility room door. He cracked it open and peeked inside. He turned to Lester, saying, "'She's blown her head off.' They both turned towards the phone, getting ready to call the police, but as Lester reached for the receiver, the phone rang. He picked it up, realizing quickly that it was Alan. Lester and Jerry told Alan the baby was okay, but it looked like Betty had been shot. They then called the police. Alan was in shock, not knowing what else to do. His move, maybe you guessed it, was to call Candy Montgomery again. Pat Montgomery, at this point, was starting to turn red. It was 11.30 at night, and he and Candy had just started making love. Candy had quickly reached for the phone to answer it. Alan told Candy that Betty was dead, and Candy's voice broke, asking what had happened. It looks like she's been shot. The neighbors found her. Candy asked, What about Bethany? Alan didn't even hear the question. All he could think about was Betty. He never thought she would hurt herself. Alan asked Candy to keep Alyssa for a while and not to tell her what happened because he wanted to tell her himself. Candy slept for three hours that night, and the next day she went through the rituals of being a housewife, cleaning, putting away toys, and feeding her children. Then the phone call started. Gossip was spreading. The phone rang repeatedly that Saturday morning at Candy's house. She was told that the police had left the Gore house and that Betty had been murdered. The phone kept ringing, so Candy went outside, looking for something to do out there. She started on some yard work. A friend called to let Candy know that Alan was home, and he had been told that Betty was actually murdered with an axe. Candy sat, listening to the gossip, with her garden shears in her hands. As she listened, she used the shears to cut through a pair of rubber sandals. She cut them into teeny tiny pieces, and then dumped them in a garbage can. Candy, by her own report, was the last person to see Betty alive and she soon became the main suspect in the case. It didn't take long. Her version of events remained the same every time she was asked, and police didn't suspect her. Alan was cleared by police. He couldn't have done it. He was accounted for at work and then on the plane. When police asked who might have a grudge against Betty or himself, he couldn't come up with anyone. They then asked how their marriage was and if he'd ever had any affairs. He would eventually admit to the affair with Candy, but said it ended several months earlier, and it was her idea to end it. Candy would never hurt Betty. The police disagreed. His confession gave the police a motive for killing, one they never imagined when they had questioned Candy the first time. Her feet matched the size of the footprints at the crime scene. There was a bloody thumbprint found on the freezer in the utility room. Police had always thought it was a woman or a child who had fought with Betty. They took Candy's fingerprints and found a match. Now they just wanted the truth. Police would arrest Candy and charge her with murder. At first she denied the charges, but when faced with the evidence, she admitted her guilt. The problem was she couldn't remember much of anything that happened that day. Princeton resident 
Steve Deffenbaugh, was a 31-year-old crime scene investigator at the time. He used his camera to record the crime scene. Photo after photo, he could tell important details of the crime, and I'm going to share them with you. There was a small amount of blood on the entryway floor and some blood on an interior door frame. In the bathroom, there was evidence that the killer had showered but had left some obvious clues. A green bath mat in front of the tub had heavily blood-stained footprints. In the bathtub, there was blood on the gold tile walls and on a gold bath mat in and around the drain. The drain held human hair mixed with dog hair from the gore's two small dogs. Investigators would later tie the hair to candy. On the bureau in the master bedroom, a $20 bill was sitting in a box. This was evidence there wasn't a robbery. On the Gore's bed lay a book about exploring England, which Betty had been reading in preparation for a planned summer trip. Inside the book was a letter that she had written that afternoon to her mother. In the letter, she wrote about how busy she was, but that she had such a good friend named Candy taking care of Alyssa. In fact, Alyssa was at church camp that week. She was enjoying her time with Candy's daughter. Because Alan was going to be out of town, plans had been made for Alyssa to spend the night at Candy's home. One photo of the living room showed a wide doorway, which led to a utility room at the back of the house. In the utility room, blood covered all the walls, the freezer, and the door leading to the garage. Photos of the linoleum floor in the utility room showed three dots in one photo, and the same three dots with tape measure open in another photo. The dots measured a shoe print and indicated they belonged to a small person. There was a photo of a three-foot-long axe, which was the weapon used to kill Betty. The blade appeared to be half-hidden under the freezer. Nearby, a pair of sunglasses with missing lens and one sandal lay on the floor, both indicating a struggle. Photos of the utility room floor showed slide marks and a footprint on a chair below a window, indicating Betty's body had been moved. Several photos of the freezer showed blood smeared on the white exterior in what looked like a failed attempt to clean it up. This was where they found the thumbprint. There were multiple photos of Betty's body, and they were gruesome. She was struck 41 times with an axe, 28 of them in the head. Betty's hands had typical defense wounds from trying to protect herself from the blows. None of her friends could believe that Candy was guilty of such a thing. She would get cards of support and meals were delivered to her house. Candy ended up hiring a friend, a lawyer, from her church to represent her. The media went wild. Her lawyer usually handled personal injury cases, but suddenly he had the biggest case in Texas on his hands. As he began to delve into the case, he realized he was going to need help prying memories out of Candy. There was no way he could explain 41 chops as self-defense. He needed more. He enlisted the aid of a psychiatrist who was very skilled at hypnotism. After a couple of hours of interviewing, when the psychiatrist had earned Candy's trust, he tried hypnosis. She was very susceptible. She went under quickly and deeply. It took several sessions, but he was finally able to piece together what happened to Betty that morning. Betty was expecting Candy that day, but not until noon, so when Betty responded to a knock on her door, she had a look of annoyance on her face. She had just put the baby down for a mid-morning nap, 
and hurried to the door before the baby would be woken up. She had a half-finished cup of coffee in her hands and a television show on in the background. She was dressed for housework when Candy saw her. Betty, I have a special flavor to ask you, Candy said abruptly. The girls wanted Alyssa to go see a movie with us tonight, and I said it was okay with me, if it's okay with you, and I'd be happy to take her to her swimming lessons to save you an extra trip. That's okay, Betty said. Come on in. I thought it would be, so I just ran down from Bible school to get Alyssa's swimsuit. The two women walked into the living room, and Betty switched off the TV, asking Candy if she wanted some coffee. No thanks, responded Candy, glancing around the room, noticing that Betty was sewing something. Candy asked where Bethany was, and Betty responded that she had just fallen asleep. Candy was disappointed because she'd wanted to play with the baby. Betty went on to say, Candy, if you're going to take Alyssa to her swimming lesson, remember she doesn't like to put her face in water, so when she does, make sure you give her a peppermint afterwards. That's the reward we use. They continued to talk for a while, and Candy glanced at her watch, saying, It's getting late. I have some errands to run. Do you want me to grab Alyssa's suit? Betty didn't move from her chair. Her face was blank, and her eyes were unfocused. Candy, she asked calmly, Are you having an affair with Alan? Candy was stunned. No, of course not, she answered a little too quickly. Betty squinted, and a steeliness crept into her tone. But you did, didn't you? Yes, was Candy's reply, but it was a long time ago. Did Alan tell you? Candy looked into Betty's face for some kind of sign. Wait a minute, Betty said, and she rose from her chair and walked into the utility room. After a few seconds, she walked back out, holding an axe in her hands. She held the axe away from her, with the blade pointing towards the floor. Candy wasn't really frightened, but she stood up, saying Betty's name. Betty sat the axe down and told Candy that she would get a towel from the bathroom for Alyssa. Candy grabbed Alyssa's swimsuit off the washing machine and wanted to get out of there. Betty reminded her not to forget Alyssa's peppermints. "'That's okay. I have some peppermints at home I can give her,' Candy replied as she stuffed the swimsuit and towel into her handbag. Betty passed her a handful of peppermints, which she dropped in as well. When Candy glanced up, she saw Betty staring at her. But her expression wasn't one of rage. Instead, it was full of pain. Candy clumsily placed her hand on Betty's arm and said, with pity, "'Oh, Betty, I'm so sorry.' The pity enraged Betty. She threw Candy's hand from her arm and shoved her into the utility room, then grabbed the axe from the doorway and rushed in after Candy, holding it like a weapon across her chest. "'You can't have him!' Betty screamed, crowding Candy. "'You can't have him! I'm going to have a baby, and you can't have him this time!' "'Betty, don't!' said Candy, putting her hands on the axe as Betty moved closer. "'This is stupid. I don't want Alan!' The women locked eyes, and Betty began to jerk the axe, trying to control it. "'Betty, don't do this!' Candy pleaded. "'Please stop!' I've got to kill you, Betty said slowly, and with finality. They fought for control of the axe. Betty yanked on the axe, jerking it upwards. The flat side of the blade slapped the side of Candy's head. Betty, what are you doing? Candy asked as she stepped backwards, further into the utility room. Candy touched her head with her hand. She looked down at it, and it was covered with blood. When she looked back at Betty, she saw the axe blade raising overhead, and looking as though Betty was going to bring it down. 
She screamed at the top of her lungs, jumping sideways into a cabinet and spilling things to the floor. The axe missed entirely and landed on the linoleum. It bounced once and hit Candy's toe, cutting it. Candy grabbed the head of the axe. Her fear and pleas to stop now turned to anger. Both women were furious. Betty started shoving and jerking on the handle, thrusting the axe towards Candy's body, kicking her legs and kneeing her in the thighs. Candy tried to jerk the handle of the axe out of Betty's hands. Betty moved her hands up the handle, trying to get leverage. She bit Candy on the knuckle. With her head bent to Candy's knuckle, Betty was off balance, and Candy shoved the axe against Betty's body. Betty fell backwards against the freezer and slipped to the floor. As she tried to regain her balance, Candy brought the axe up with both hands and slammed the blade into the back of Betty's head. The blow sounded with a hollow pop, like a cork punt coming out of a wine bottle, and blood gushed, dripping down Betty's neck and back. Candy dropped the axe and jumped away from Betty. Betty began to fall to the floor with blood pouring out of her skull, but she struggled to her feet. Candy was terrified by the blood and the certainty that she'd just killed Betty. She ran for the living room door and tried to pull on it, but Betty slammed her body against the door. Candy saw blood across the side of Betty's face, and Betty was reaching for the axe again. Tears began pouring out of Candy's eyes as she pleaded for Betty to let her go. Betty responded with the words, I can't. Candy grabbed the axe again, and they began circling the utility room. Blood dripped everywhere. At one point, Betty bumped against the freezer again. Candy tried to reach for the door of the garage, and she was able to pull it open a few inches with one hand while the other was on the axe. But then Betty shoved her away and slammed the door shut. Blood was all over the utility room. Betty grabbed Candy's hair, and Candy slipped, falling to the floor in front of the freezer. Betty tried to lift the axe, but couldn't get it up quickly enough. Candy knocked her down by kicking her legs out from under her, and Betty fell forward on top of Candy. The axe fell between them. Candy tried one more time to get out the garage door, but the knob wouldn't turn. She pivoted towards Betty, pleading again. Betty, don't. Please let me go. I don't want him. I don't want him. Betty's eyes flared, and her response was to put a finger to her lips and tell Candy to shh. According to the hypnotherapist, the sound echoed through Candy's subconscious like an alarm. Candy would remember that her mother shushed her in the hospital, disciplining her. Candy was at the hospital because she had cut herself on a broken glass jar. That shush evoked extreme anger in Candy. She grabbed the axe from Betty, jerking it backwards with all her might, and wrapping both hands around the blade. The handle of the axe was covered in blood, and when Betty tried to pull back just as hard, her hand slipped off and she fell backwards. She wouldn't stay down, though. She lunged toward Candy one last time. Candy brought the axe up and swung it down with all the strength she could. There was no pity or remorse in her conscience now. She was just angry. Candy destroyed Betty out of pure, unadulterated hate. Candy only stopped when she was utterly exhausted. Forty-one chop wounds. Forty of them occurred while Betty's heart was still beating. When the courtroom heard the story, they went silent. 
Her lawyer felt that her testimony might be considered too rehearsed. Candy appeared too composed, harsh even. He asked her if when she went over there she meant to kill Betty with that axe. The response was no. Candy's lawyer picked up the axe and placed it on his hip. But you did kill her with the axe, didn't you? he said as he walked towards the witness box. Yes, Candy replied. This axe right here, he questioned. Don't make me look at it, she cried. He grabbed the axe with both hands and thrust it towards Candy's face. Don't, she responded. You killed her with this axe right here, didn't you? her lawyer said. Candy screamed. She screamed so loudly that Pat Montgomery could hear her in the witness room thirty yards away. Then Candy burst into tears. Her lawyer said, You killed her with this axe right here, didn't you? She cried yes, and he removed it from her sight. When it was finally time for the jury to make their verdict, they came back in only four and a half hours with the decision that Candy would be acquitted of all charges. Can you believe that? Many people believe that Candy should have been guilty of at least manslaughter. Investigator Duffenbaugh said three of the people in the 12-person jury were friends of Candy or her attorneys. The foreman of the jury was her lawyer's daughter's soccer coach. Duffenbaugh states that the defense claimed that too many of the pictures of Betty's body would inflame the jury, so they were only allowed to show one photo. Many people believe the prosecution did a poor job presenting the case, but when Candy's lawyer presented his closing arguments, he told the jury that the prosecution presented not one word of evidence that refuted the testimony of self-defense. Personally, I'm amazed that someone who's defending themselves ended up with only a small cut on her toe, a few bruises, and a scrape on her head, while the other person ended up dead. It takes a long time to swing an axe 40 times. It is possible that Candy dissociated, but it's also a very convenient excuse. No matter, Candy Montgomery is a free woman. She is now aged in her 70s. She and Pat were divorced four years after her trial. She changed her name back to her maiden name and works as a mental health counselor. I'm guessing she's punished pretty regularly by seeing her story told over and over in the media. There have been several movies and TV series made to cover this case. As I said, it's quite popular. If you like what you heard today, please give this podcast a good rating and review. I would love to hear from you guys about any cases you'd like me to cover. This one was a good one, so thank you again, Jeannie, for suggesting it. Please follow Twisted Travel and True Crime on our social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. If you'd like to throw some money my way, you can do so through Venmo or through sponsoring the podcast. There are links to both of those options in the show description. Thank you all once again for listening. And as always, I want to wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.